0: If you're enjoying our show, please make sure you're subscribed and join us on Patreon today, starting at a tip of just $3 at patreon.com slash green dreamer. Every little bit helps and really adds up. And that is the power in community. So thank you so much for however you're able to support our work. Green Dreamer is supported by our listener patrons at greendreamer.com support. And this month, our work is also supported by Conscious Step, a fair trade, got certified organic cotton socks brand that donates to a cause for every pair sold. What really stood out to me is not just the fun variety of nature-inspired prints that their socks have, but also the variety of causes they support, many of which help to address social and environmental injustice, from rainforest and ocean conservation, access to clean water, education, combating violence, and more. If you're an avid listener of this show, you know how important it's been for us to really find the connections between different social and environmental concerns. And I just really appreciate our alignment there. So, next time you need new socks for yourself or for loved ones, you can shop their socks at consciousstep.com and use our code GreenDreamer for 20% off. Again, it's consciousstep.com and GreenDreamer for 20% off.
1: Everything, every material thing that we buy or are interested in has a color. And so when all of these things have colors whose origins aren't apparent to us, it really contributes to our inability to know what the substance is and where it comes from. And what that does is that it cuts us off from being able to have a relationship with that material that is in alignment with our ethics.
0: Our guest today is Tilka Elkins, a multimedia social practice artist and the founder of Wild Pigment Project, which is an organization that promotes ecological balance and regenerative economies through a passion for wild pigments, their places of origin, and their cultural histories. One of their really profound initiatives to support this mission is called Ground Bright, and that's basically a pigment of the month subscription offering where you sign up and you'd receive a pouch of a pigment tenderly gathered from a beloved outdoor place by a regional artist forager. So essentially, it's a creative way for us to connect tangibly with the places where the pigments originate, as well as to learn more about their natural, cultural, and geologic history, and to help safeguard these places and their stories 22% of the net proceeds go to nonprofits promoting the stewardship of the land and cultures connected to that land chosen by each month's featured pigment artist so it's all really interesting if you'd like to learn more about this their past artists and partner organizations work you can head to wildpigmentproject.org/ground-bright and this will of course be linked in our show notes as well Onwards here, we're going to be talking about how synthetic pigments came to dominate the industry of color, how working with place-based, wild-harvested pigments might transform our perceptions of color as consumers, creatives, or as artists, and more. Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to ecological balance, intersectional sustainability, and true abundance and wellness for all. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. Both
1: of my parents are people who really love the planet, and they're both artists and poets and writers business people. And they really instilled with me in me from a really young age, just their own love for the outdoors. And in addition to that, my mom, as a young adult, when I was a baby, was a childbirth educator and birth activist who founded Birthing Rooms in North America. So her her dedication to her own values and her... Um, Courage and action in that area really inspired me. I think from you know babyhood on. Mm. Additionally, I grew up as the only kid in my household, and so I was never alone when I was outside. Um, whenever I felt lonely, I would connect with the interspecies community in my surrounds, which was both in urban places and also I was lucky to spend time in the countryside in Quebec and in Vermont as a kid a lot. So I formed relationships with trees and with meadows. And really, that has been the foundation of my inspiration as an artist my whole life is those relationships and just the, the joy and wonder that I feel when I'm outside.
0: So in 2019, you started your organization, Wild Pigment Project, to help promote ecological balance and regenerative economies through a passion for wild pigments, their places of origin, and their cultural histories. As a contrast to that, what does our current relationship with color and pigments look like today, whether we're talking about dyes for our clothes, for textiles, or maybe paints for artists or construction projects?
1: In dominant culture, pigment use today is primarily synthetic, so organic synthetic pigments. These are pigments that are produced from petroleum products, and pretty much every dye and paint and colored surface that we produce comes from one of these pigments. I say dominant culture because there are many cultures that don't use as much of these pigments or don't exclusively use them and use pigments that come from botanical and mineral sources. But um, if we're talking about the urban cultures and the the majority of the population of humans on Earth, then we're talking about these petroleum-based pigments. And they're pigments. Um, they're pigments that I think are they're interesting because. The human mind, I think, has trouble really understanding what oil and petroleum is as a material because it's made of ancient beings. I mean, it is organic. Um, It was once ancient plants and tiny sea creatures. But it's hard to to look at black sludge and really feel into that history. So I think that when we make something out of that substance, it almost feels like an abstraction or like an idea and less like a material that we can feel whose history we can feel into and understand and connect with. So where a tube of red paint feels like the idea of red or rather than an actual material like a soil or a plant.
0: And this is certainly something I feel like we haven't really talked about a lot or that people don't really talk about a lot in terms of the environmental impacts of our modern society. We talk a lot about the materials used, but a lot of people see color as just a physical trait and not necessarily, we don't really think about it as the material that it had to originate from.
1: Yeah. And there's a really long history behind why we do that or why some of us do that today. That is fascinating. Um, Ochres were, ochres, which is essentially just a word for rock, clay, or sand that has a high iron content. So, Iron, when it oxidizes, turns yellow, red, or a range of other colors. And so when when I say ochre, I mean a rock or an earth that has a high iron mineral uh, content. Um, Humanity evolved with ochre, and anthropologists think that even our our brains may have evolved because of our ochre use. There are records now that I think the the oldest record is 307,000 years ago um, that scientists have been able to accurately carbon date a shell that had some ochre in it. So it was clear that it was being used at a, a homo sapiens site. Um, art historically, mineral pigments like ochre and then a whole range of other plant pigments and pigments that were metal based and were produced by humans using alchemical methods made up the palette artist palette until the very early 1700s so at that time those those were still substances that people related to they were stones they were plants they were earths artists at one time for, for a long time made their own paints um, they had assistants but they still were gathering their materials and they still knew what they were making and then eventually There was a profession that evolved of color men who would make paint for artists, and then there was the invention of the metal tube that allowed artists to put their paint in a tube and go out and paint in plein air, and also to buy paint in a tube that was premixed. So. That was the early days of what's known as modern pigments. And I think that that was the beginning of artists moving away from an awareness of what the material origins of their pigments were.
0: What do you think have been some of the social, cultural, or environmental costs created as a result of our dominant Western culture looking at color in a much more superficial manner and disconnected from its origins and this rich cultural history?
1: Everything, every material thing that we buy or are interested in has a color. And so when all of these things have colors whose origins aren't apparent to us, it really contributes to our uh, inability to know what the substance is and where it comes from. And what that does is that it cuts us off from being able to have a relationship with that material that is in alignment with our ethics We don't know what the source is. We don't know what the resource is, what communities it comes from, who it affects. We don't know what its byproducts are. We don't know what the consequences of the use of this object is. And then because we're also disconnected from the outcomes of this object's disposal, we're not part of the cycle, the life cycle of the material. And I think that being surrounded by so many materials whose history we don't know, has really contributed to our inability to make choices that are positive for the planet.
0: So at this point, you've been experimenting with, painting with, and learning about wild pigments for quite some time now. A lot of us have certainly been removed from this knowledge, so I'd love for you to share some basics with us. What exactly do you do in search of wild pigments and what is the process for harvesting them and transforming them into paints or dyes for use?
1: Although the subject of botanical and mineral and uh, waste stream sourced pigments is vast and it touches on many areas of discipline from science to all branches of science, including ecology and geology and soil science and botany, and it goes on and on. And then, of course, anthropology, and art history, and folklore studies, and many, many realms. And, and each one has is just resonant with information. Pigments are a kind of nexus point for all of these interdisciplinary subjects. Um, mm-hmm. But what's so beautiful about them is that anyone can have a physical, tangible material experience with them by going out and gathering something as simple as, well, I'll just give my favorite example, which is black walnut husks. So this time of year, they're not as available um, unless you've saved them from last year. But in early fall, black walnut trees, which grow in many parts of North America, will uh, drop their nuts on the ground. And in cities, they're often all over the place and um, you know they're in the gutters and they have big yellow sort of squishy husks on them. And if you gather these up um, using gloves, if you don't want to get your hands stained, and simmer them in a little bit of water and then strain that liquid through a filter, a coffee filter, you're left with the most gorgeous brown ink that you can use. And it's not toxic, you don't have to worry about it um, health wise. Mm. And so immediately, the black walnut is kind of an opening point, an entry point for someone who wants to start to use fewer synthetic-based pigments. um, Because most artists who work in 2D, um, drawing and painting, draw. So walnut ink can be used for drawing. It can also be used as a stain on wood. I like to paint on wood, so I often do my underpaintings with black walnut. And yeah, it's just a very easy entry point. As far as earth pigments go, um, everyone is around soil, and soil has all different colors. The ones that kind of stick in people's minds are the ones that are brighter, um, like reds and yellows and oranges. But everyone, everywhere where we are has, uh, is likely to have some kind of soil. Five percent of the earth's crust is made up of iron, and the core of the earth is made of a solid iron nickel alloy. So iron, and iron is in our blood. So we're physically very connected to iron and it's very easy for someone to take soil and through some really simple steps, filter it and get uh, a dry pigment that they can mix with a little bit of uh, medium like egg tempera, which is just egg yolk with water or some other simple things and use that for paint and begin to explore that way. So it's very accessible while at the same time being really rich with opportunities for specialization and going deep.
0: Right. I'm also thinking about how when we begin to explore our wild spaces with this lens in mind, it most likely would make us be a lot more attuned to our to our environments and be attuned to all the little details and all the colors around us.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Foraging is the beginning of a reciprocal relationship, what Robin Wall Kimmerer in her amazing book, Braiding Sweetgrass, talks about as reciprocity or reciprocal relationships where instead of moving through and passively observing a place, when you are interested in entering into a relationship with a plant or with soil or with pebbles on a riverbank and you're looking for something that will nourish you, in turn, you start to to look at that place and have a little bit more curiosity about the well-being of that place and the plants there and how they change over time. And it's just this incredible portal into what is has the potential to be really rich relationships, um, not only with the interspecies world, the non-human world, but then also with the people, people who are there. People are so curious about paint-making and about foraging because I think that we all have a really deep inner longing to, for intimacy with the non-human. And so, um, anytime I am out foraging, I'm very often approached by people who are curious and who want to see and who I can kind of open the door to that world.
0: Something that I've personally come to learn is that sustainability isn't about never touching, never taking, or never interfering with, but about not overstepping and exploiting the earth's abundance with greed. And then on the other side to, again, like you just mentioned, cultivate reciprocity and play our roles in regeneration and in restoration and giving back. What do you think is important for us to keep in mind regarding ethical foraging from wild spaces, which in some of the dominant Western views of conservation, a lot of the dominant views of conservation is indeed about, you know, setting aside these wild spaces to never touch.
1: Yeah, I think that's known as fortress conservation by some. Maybe those who don't who don't feel into that way of doing it. You know, I think ethical foraging is very important, and I'd like to just mention my own understanding of that. Um, but I want to first say that the reason I use the word wild for wild pigment project is a little bit different from the way the word is used in other contexts. I consider wild to to uh, mean anywhere where there is an interspecies community. So an interspecies community that's visible. So um, not just humans. So really that includes any outdoor space for me. And I use that a little bit. I use it in that different sense because I think that the original way that the word wild was often used in European culture was implying that there was a separate space for there were separate spaces for humans and then for everybody else. Mm. Um, But really when we look at global history of the planet, people have been tending all the different ecosystems on the planet, indigenous people, indigenous cultures have been tending these spaces for thousands of years. So there's never been this separate, um, separate places for people and the other beings. So that's, that is where my position is on sort of, whether we can be part of wildlands and whether humans can whether it's healthy to to forage at all, um, especially in a world that is, of course, very stressed by by the human presence. All of that said, I do think it's very important to be sensitive to how how we impact the other species, and especially when we're entering into a relationship, we want to be sensitive in that relationship. So, there are places where, because we have our presence has been so heavy in on the whole planet, there are places that need to have a break from um, heavy human presence, and that's important to conserve those places. Um, but also, even more importantly, I think that we can have an awareness of what our impact is when we forage in a place. So, one reason I like to talk about black walnut is that it's abundant. It's not stressed. It grows in urban places and it produces a huge quantity of material. For plants that are not abundant and and that don't produce much, or for places that have pigments that are really precious and where minerals are a limited resources, they, they don't regenerate necessarily. I mean, they're always forming in different ways, but if there's a pocket of a precious mineral, then it can be depleted. So what I love about, about working with wild pigments in the way that, that I understand it to be effective is, is that I like to use materials that are commonplace, that are abundant, that are um, not, not stressed, and that are easy to find, and to really sink into an aesthetic appreciation of, of those things and not to seek out plants and minerals that are rare. I also really enjoy um, and want to say something about using pigments from the waste stream, um, which I also consider, you know, if I find some rusty iron on the banks of the river near where I live, I consider that a wild pigment because I can soak that in water and use it as a mordant for dyes or um, grind it and make a, a red rich pigment out of it.
0: I really love that in this sense, your artwork pretty directly reflects your regional landscape because you're using more of what's more abundant and using less of what's more rare. So that color scheme is almost a direct reflection of what is readily available in your environment as opposed to just having this idea in your mind independently of what you want your canvas to look like and then just trying to realize whatever it is you had in your mind. So, this way you're really working with your local landscape rather than just trying to realize this vision you have in your head.
1: Yeah, that's a a really perceptive um, point to make. It was a big shift for me. I mean, it was a shift that took a long time. The way that I started using these pigments, I had been interested in college in. Well, I was a printmaker and one day a visiting artist came to uh, talk to us and she saw me with the printer ink all over my hands because I was a very tactile person. I didn't wear gloves and I just mm-hmm. wanted to be covered in ink. And she looked at me and she said, well, you won't be able to do that for long. <laughs> and I sort of laughed it off. But a couple of years later when I was pursuing printmaking in grad school, I just suddenly uh, realized that I couldn't but I didn't want to work with synthetic pigments anymore. And um, I began to paint with chlorophyll, which was a vitamin supplement um, made out of alfalfa that was had a deep, deep green color, but was quite fugitive. So eventually, when I came to a place in my career as an artist where I decided that I really wanted to figure out um, what paints I could make that that would last and could really give me the color range that I loved so much in synthetic pigments... I took all of my paints out of my studio, all my synthetic pigments. I put them in a box and I created a need for myself where I would have to, uh, that I would have to address and that I would have to fill. And so as I was saying, initially I was really kind of gentle with myself around that. And I allowed myself to to buy pigments online um, that had been mined from different places around the world and were mostly earths, but in really bright colors that I didn't Uh, you know, I hadn't really foraged much. And so uh, I bought greens and pinks and yellows. And I really wanted to prove to myself that using earth pigments didn't mean using what I at the time considered to be both visually dull and emotionally boring. So I spent a number of years exploring the visual properties and how I could layer paints and use them and use um, botanical colors in combination with mineral ones to get really rich, bright greens, which are hard to achieve um, historically. It's ah been a long conversation about how difficult it is to get a bright green, and of course, with synthetic pigments, there are so many tantalizing greens. Um, so I, I explored explored that for a long time, and then I came to a place where I was. I found an amazing book called Colors from the Earth by and Walt Thomas about how to gather, how to forage for and gather mineral pigments and prepare them. And I started to do that, but that led me down a new road that was a whole nother exploration that had to do with the land where I live and its history and what that meant and what did it mean for me, who was a descendant of European settlers to gather up the land that was unceded land of um, Kalapuya territory. here in Oregon where I live and to use that without understanding the cultural history of that pigment at all. So that was a journey that brought me into a lot of relationships and where I was able to ask questions and um, get a clearer sense of of what that meant. And so that's a long way to, really long way to answer your question. But I think that that shift from having a, a palette that is just where it's any color in the whole world, you know the the human eye can see millions of colors. So artists are more limited than that by the pigments that are available, but it's still a huge range with synthetic pigments. And bringing that into just what I can find and and make in the place where I live was a, a journey of building relationships with place and understanding what it meant to use these colors, which. Really was what I wanted all along. So yeah. yeah, it isn't. It for me, it was a very long process. Uh, it, it was a long and slow process, which feels, you know, stones and stones have a a much slower time frame. The geological time fri- frame is is vast compared to the human one. So um, in some ways, it makes sense that it took me so long. Mm-hmm.
0: Right. Given that so many of our large industries today are reliant on loads of synthetic dyes and synthetic pigments, we have the printing industry, we have the clothing and textile manufacturing industry, we have construction material industry, we have industry that creates pigments for artists and so forth. How practical do you think it is for us to rewild the colors that we use? in this way that you spoke about.
1: Is mm-hmm. it possible
0: for us to keep up with that sort of high demand? Or do you think that necessarily has to come with our scaling down of materialism?
1: In spite of the 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 scale at which we're looking at, you know, these massive industries that are working with synthetic pigments and, and materials, as you say, there are there are movements that are gathering momentum. Um, Re- Rebecca Burgess's Fibershed movement, and also Sasha Dewar, who is a natural dyer. Her uh, reassessment of how we view color as as a culture, instead of looking these looking at these Pantone colors, looking instead at at plant colors and uh, local palettes. And Sasha has worked with Patagonia to start integrating plant dyes into their process. So. There's that realm, but for me, what really interests me is the individual relationship with the land and maybe coming at it from the direction of can we replace all of our industrial color with mineral and botanical pigments right away isn't the approach that, that I'm coming from. It's more of what happens to us when we start to form relationships with the land uh, because of our inspiration to look for pigments it's about land stewardship and cultural stewardship when we start to want to know the history of the place where we're gathering that color and understand the ancient cultures and the living cultures and of that place and when we start to form relationships. And that I, I don't know what this is going to look like, but I do know that many, many people are moved by this. And so it's a way to to be actively in Actively engaged in material that has a pragmatic use and has a rich history and that initiates land stewardship. And those three things feel, feel like they uh, are pretty powerful and have potential to bring us somewhere that we can't even predict right now.
0: Well, you mentioned your focus is more on our individual relationship and not necessarily the larger industries, but I actually think this is the place we have to start to be able to change those larger industries because when we each individually develop these deeper relationships with our local landscapes, when our perspectives change, then maybe our decision making across the board will also start to change. And the types of things that we vote for, the types of initiatives that we support and that may just create a ripple effect to helping us get to where we need to go in in the larger picture.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing is that as the culture of this, as people, you know, especially through this quarantine and and world situation and um just in general as people's awareness of warming grows and their desire to really be Working from their hearts to to create a living place here for all of us. As that all grows, I think that industries do notice that, and and there become there are more and more scientists and artists who who want to work with industries. And there's an example of uh, the painting company Gamblin, who has just partnered with an artist and an engineer to create a product that is uh it's called reclaimed earth colors and it's made of acid mine drainage pigments so it's a program that's that is has the potential they have a factory now that has a potential to convert 1.4 million gallons of acidified water that have oxidized iron in them into 5,000 pounds of pigment every single day and that's in ohio where the factory is but so i think that while um in the past, people have might have might have considered earth pigments to be kind of more of something that you would do if you were trying to rec- recreate styles of painting from the past, or if you were into crafts. I think now people are understanding that matter, material carries message, and it is a um, it's a place where we can take responsibility. And so, as more and more people are interested in knowing what their pigments are made of, I think that industries will take note of that. And so it kind of goes hand in hand. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. I, per- I personally really, I love the freedom that, well, it's not exactly freedom, but it's a different kind of responsibility and a different kind of economy that someone enters into when they forage. And just going back to what we were talking about earlier with ethical foraging, I think that it is really important to to follow an ethical guideline that I can just briefly touch on here Uh, The first one is to really observe the place where you are, to know its cultural history, to study up on what happened and what what are the cultures there and what might it mean to people. And then to, on on a small scale, inquire if it's okay to gather rocks at a particular park. Is that legal? To have a sense of the plants there and how they relate uh, wherever you are. And then Really, to just check in with yourself intuitively, like does it feel good to me to pick up this this clay rock, or does it feel good to pick this plant? Do is it going to impact the other plants and animals in this area when I do that? Um, what effect is it going to have? And often it has a, a it can have a really positive effect. I mean, there's a lot of documentation that Robin Wall Kimmerer talks about in her book of how human uh, foraging. Really brings health to plant communities. So often it can be really positive, or it can just be a matter of picking up trash in that place and leaving it better than when you found it. But then another thing that's good to remember is to just take small quantities. Take much less than half of what's there if it's a small amount, and way less than half of what's there if it's a larger amount. And you really just want to have what you can hold in your two hands for me that, that works as a really good guideline. And then I also often give thanks in a way that is meaningful to me, where I'll leave something like a small bundle of dried nettles that I've harvested previously, or just give thanks in a way that, that I resonate with. Mm. So um, those are the, the basic guidelines for foraging, but I really, I really think it's up to each individual to explore that and form their own opinion of, of how they can have a positive relationship with the land. It's important to also treat yourself well. And so I just wanted to take this opportunity to say that just because something is um, something that we think of as natural doesn't mean that it's non toxic. So it's really important to be aware of what you're foraging and then to protect yourself when you process it. So you should always, you know, if you're using any kind of pots and pans or mortars and pestles, these are tools of the trade that may uh, not be known to you now, but as you explore this, you start to build your tool vocabulary, you should only ever use those for processing the material and not for cooking or food use. And you should always wear a a dust mask whenever you pound dry pigment, because even if the mineral itself isn't toxic, the tiny particles over time will build up in your lungs and can cause um, health issues. And you may also want to wear gloves depending on what you're working with. So it is important to take care of yourself as well as the place where you gather.
0: And finally, you mentioned some really important and helpful ethical foraging guidelines earlier. If our artsy listener or maybe people with kids in their households are absolutely inspired by this conversation and want to learn how to create art using wild pigments and to learn more from you, how do you recommend they get started?
1: Well, for starters, a really good place to go is the Wild Pigment Project website, which is at wildpigmentproject.org. So it's got a whole bunch of books in the suggested reading section that are great about color and pigment and pigment making, and it also has a section called Pigment People, which is um, has bios and links to work by independent artists who work with pigment. So that is just this rich trove of inspiration. If people are looking to study pigment foraging and making, I do give regular workshops on the subject throughout the year and sometimes at my home studio and sometimes at Wildcraft Studio School in Portland. So um, they can look for information on those at uh, on my website. And I also now, since, since we don't know when we're going to be able to do those workshops in person, another option is to do a one-on-one private instruction consultation uh, remotely with me through a video call. So, uh, there's yet another way for people who are excited about pigments and maybe don't have a lot of experience or maybe have never had, you know, touched them and worked with them and know what they're like to work with as artists. Um, and that is to subscribe to something called ground bright, which is, it's kind of like a pigment of the month club, um, where you get a pigment in your mailbox every month. And these are pigments that are gathered each month by a different artist, a different person who forages for pigments in their own creative practice. And they contribute those pigments to a Wild Pigment Project. And then they also determine an organization or land trust or land cultural trust stewardship organization that they want to direct 22% of Ground Bright's net profits for the month to. So it's a way to give back to the land where they gathered the pigment, the people who take care of the land, the land there. And that feels really important. When I was talking earlier about ethical foraging, I also wanted to mention that any kind of monetary support that you can give to a place and to uh, the people who are connected to that place in a deep way is really important, I think, if, if you can do that, because it's it's a way of putting action to your, to your words and to your inner sort of beliefs.
0: an uplifting social media account or publication you follow or a book that's been really profound for you? One book
1: that's really been profound for me this year is What's Next? Eco Materialism and Contemporary Art. Um, it was published just this last year by Linda Weintraub. And it really, for any artist who is interested in this approach to their materials, it really is kind of a manifesto for how to learn about and how to be inspired by the work of other artists who are working towards stewardship through their art.
0: What do you tell yourself to stay positive and inspired? I remind myself
1: not to be isolated as an artist and that community and collaboration are are great sources of mystery, inspiration, and answers beyond what I can generate by myself.
0: What's one thing you're working on right now for your health?
1: I'm eating lots of plants. Often uh, they're plants that I can gather in near where I live, so dandelion greens, maple blossoms, Japanese knotweed tips. And I find that when I eat these, um, I have just a really, well, it's really fun. It's a good way to connect with the plants that are near me, and I just get a lot of energy from them. I'm also growing even more food in the garden than usual and replacing every last square inch of grass with food and medicine plants.
0: Mm, I really love that you're really holistically reassociating yourself and reconnecting with your local landscape, not just through your artwork, but also through what you eat. So we can definitely take inspiration from that. Um, What are you working on right now to elevate your regenerative impact for our planet?
1: Well, I'm continuing to build um, Wild Pigment Project as a rich source of connections, inspiration, and support for artists and uh, land and cultural stewards. I'm also designing an interdisciplinary teacher training program for professors who want to integrate pigment exploration into their curricula, um, be that through art, science, ecology, anthropology, or other studies. And I am also creating a support network for groups of individuals who want to hold pigment parties, um, which are are events where groups of artists can get together to share knowledge and insight and to experiment with pigments together.
0: Mm. And finally, what makes you most hopeful for our planet at the moment?
1: Really what makes me most hopeful is the joy that I see on people's faces or hearing their voices or seeing their direct messages on Instagram about their Journey with pigments. Uh, there's just so much excitement and so much wonder and so much of a sense of a, a world opening up that I see people experiencing. And I, you know, I think joy is an expression of love, and that when love is present, anything is possible.
0: Mm, beautiful. Well, Green Dreamer, if you want to learn more and stay updated on Tilka's work, you can head to com. That's spelled T-I-L-K-E-E-L-K-I-N-S.com or also be sure to head to wildpigmentproject.org. And you can also follow her on Instagram at wildpigmentproject or at Tilka Finn, that's F-I-N-N. Tilka, thank you so much for joining us today and inspiring us with your depth of knowledge on wild pigments and ecological reciprocity. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers?
1: My word of wisdom is for you is if you're inspired by this topic and it speaks to you, then just choose one pigment, a botanical, a mineral, or a waste stream derived pigment that you can easily find near you. So that could be the black walnut husks that I talked about. It could be soil from near where you live. It could be scraps of iron or copper that you find in an abandoned lot in an urban area. It could be clumps of ochre rich clay or pebbles, or even brick fragments that you can um, grind and make into pigment. But just choose one and learn to forage it and process it safely and then integrate that into your art making practice. And this will be enough to deepen your relationship to the really exquisite physicality of the material world and all the relationships that are part of it.
0: You were listening to Green Dreamer, and I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you've learned from or have been inspired by this episode, I would love to have your direct support on Patreon at greendreamer.com support so that I can keep this independent show going and accessible for everyone. Patreon is where our guests' final five tips, personal mantras, and additional suggested readings will be shared from now on, alongside some bonus content and sometimes author book giveaways as well so if you're able to join starting from two dollars per month again it's greendreamer.com support our song feature of the month is the fruitful darkness by trevor hall and i also want to thank our audio engineer scott donnell and our post-production content manager elizabeth joy we appreciate your support so much and i will catch you soon in the next episode It's open wide, the dark within my dark is where I found my light, the fruit became the doorway, and now it's open wide, the fruitful forgot me. i oh,